That's John chapter uh, 13, verse 1 through 20. We've been, if you're with us for the first time this morning, we've been journeying through the gospel of John this year. When we are up to chapter 13, where things begin to change and look a little uh, differently uh, from the rest of the gospel. In fact, some have suggested that maybe John was originally two separate books that were put together in one because John 13, moving forward, looks so differently. But we're at this classic story that um, many of us are familiar with this morning of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In fact, this story finds a place not just in the church, but often, or maybe not often, but sometimes outside of the church. is one of those stories about Jesus that has relevance in our society to promote a virtue of humility. Well, this morning we want to unpack this story and uh, what Jesus is teaching us here. Uh, so let's, let's spend a moment in, in prayer and then we will um, we'll get into our message for this morning. God, we give you thanks that you give us this, this story. God, that we get a glimpse into this moment between you and your disciples that happened long before our lives. And God, it is a struggle for us to fully understand what happened there in that room between you and your disciples and the full relevance of you washing their feet. But God, I pray this morning that you will open this scripture for us, that you'll give us fresh eyes, that we can see this old story in a new way that transforms the way that we live our lives today and tomorrow and in the days ahead. God, please let this story come alive for us and teach us something from it. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you, um, if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with churches having an altar call, or, or maybe you called it an invitation growing up, or, or is, and I, I, I didn't really have a name for it in my church growing up. I just knew the pastor would stand up at the end of his sermon, and he would say, the doors of the church are open, and we had these deacons that would grab a couple of uh, folding, I don't know if anybody grew up in similar tradition as me, but these folded metal chairs, and he would drag them out to, to, the, to the center, and the doors of the church were open, and that was an opportunity for someone to come up and make a decision about Jesus. Jesus Christ or to join the church. And so um, for most traditions, and in fact, if you grew up in the church, you're probably used to some form of that, a pastor making an appeal at the end of his sermon and, and asking you, challenging you, if you had not already, to accept Jesus Christ and, and be baptized in, into him. And if you're familiar with Tri-Cities Church, you know that we've never had a regular practice, consistent practice of having a traditional altar call where I stand here and I make that appeal or invitation. And maybe that, maybe that, maybe that bothers you about Tri-Cities Church. And, and, uh, and, and if it does, I, you know, I just want to put that out there. If it does, I, I definitely want to affirm your heart in that, right? I want to acknowledge that and affirm your heart because here's the reality, right? If you're frustrated by not seeing um, people except Jesus Christ on, on Sunday morning by an appeal or invitation or altar call, the heart in that is that you desire deeply in your heart for people to come to know the life change that happens in Jesus Christ, and that is something that we ought to be passionate about. 
Now, at Tri-Cities Church, we are passionate about seeing people make a thoughtful and deliberate and lasting decision to follow Jesus Christ in relationship with other people. And that's one of the reasons why we chose not to do an invitation, Um, because we desire to see people make this, this thoughtful, deliberate, lasting change in a relationship um, with other believers that are walking with them out of their um, disbelief into faith and acceptance of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 28, and we're, we're getting to John, believe me. If you look in the scriptures in Matthew chapter, um, chapter 28, there's a verse that's uh, commonly read. It says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so here we see in this passage that um, what Jesus is challenging his disciples with here after the resurrection is go into all the world and make disciples. That's go into all the world and live in a relationship with people who do not yet believe and walk with them into belief. And so one of the reasons why we have, have not had a regular practice of having a traditional altar call is because for two, two, two things, right? One is that we don't want to produce um, we're not primarily concerned with producing professions as we are with making disciples. We want to see people not just stand before a church and say, I believe. We want to see people walk into and live into that belief in relationship with other people. And then the second reason is that we believe that this way we can more effectively hand the responsibility back um, to the church, um, the whole church. To make disciples, because that was the dominant model in the New Testament. Um, there wasn't a large gathering like this where people became followers of Jesus Christ. Rather, there was a gathering like this of people who were already followers of Jesus Christ because the church was living into their responsibility of making disciples of the whole world. They were going out with the faith that had radically changed their life, and they were talking about it and teaching about it. They were unashamed of it, and they were making a difference. And those who believe, they brought them to this gathering known as the church. And we want to recapture that. Imagine the power if um, disciple-making didn't fall or rest on the foot of the preacher, and it rested on the, in the hands of those who were out in the world constantly interacting with far more people than would ever come into these doors, and we were able to share our faith in the workplace and in the public spaces and in our communities and in the places of our society. What a difference that would make. And so at Tri-Cities Church, we desire to see that difference. Now, that being said, for the next several months, I think something's important here. <laughs> Um, because we see this transition in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 13. Um, so for up until this point in the Gospel of John, the first 12 chapters, that was three years of Jesus walking with people and teaching and performing signs. And now in chapter 13 and for the next five chapters, it transitions to one night Right with Jesus and his disciples in the the um, kind of like a small intimate group, 
And Jesus is really unpacking the significance of the cross. And he's doing this for his disciples. And he's challenging them and asking them, do you accept this challenge, right? Do you accept what the cross means for your life, right? Do you choose to follow in the way of the cross because he knows that when they leave from that room that he's going to be crucified and they're going to be scattered and he knows that it's up to them to make a difference and take what they've learned from Jesus and what they've talked about in that room out to the world. And so since we're kind of entering this room with Jesus, where Jesus challenges people to make a decision about him and the cross of Christ and what that means for their life, I don't see a way around us as a church. And not that I'm looking for a way around it, um, but I don't see a way around us as a church to be faithful to this scripture, to be faithful to this passage of scripture and not allow the challenge of Jesus with this, this group come alive for us and challenge us to make a decision about Jesus. And so for the next several months as we are in these next uh, chapters in John, we are going to be challenging you with what will you do about Jesus. Now, if if you've already made a decision to follow Jesus and you've been baptized into him and, uh, and you've been walking with the Lord and going to church a long time, be sure not to tune this challenge out as though it's a challenge that you've already accepted and uh, have already been fully living according to because as we read the scriptures, right, and as we study the scriptures and as we journey through the gospel of John, the thing that becomes painfully clear for me and I hopefully for you that, that, um, that you didn't know the full will of God the moment you first believed. And that as you read the scriptures, you are challenged to make the decision to follow Christ anew. You're challenged to reaffirm that decision. And so if you have not made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, as we get into John chapter 13, I want to challenge you to have, begin that conversation today. I am open. I am willing. I am excited about entering into that conversation with, with you. I, I challenge you to make that decision. If you've already made that decision, I challenge you, and if you find the Scriptures challenging in ways that you have questions or ways that you have uh, um, uncertainty and you're not totally clear on, but you want to follow Jesus with all your heart, I challenge you to enter into that relationship where we can walk together into faithfulness to Jesus Christ, because what we see with Jesus' disciples in John chapter 13 and on uh, in John chapter 13 and on to today, right, that it was disciples who made a decision to walk faithfully according to the word and will of Jesus that made all the difference. It wasn't people that said, oh, yeah, 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 you know we believe Jesus. Yeah, 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 we know we believe the resurrection. It was people that were challenged by his word and his will, and together in community, found the strength and the power to do that. And we are benefiting from the faith of those who come, came before us. And we want those who are coming long after us to benefit from our faith and our um, 
what, what, um, what Paul says, our choosing to die daily and follow Jesus Christ with our all. And so this section that we get at in John, where Jesus begins unpacking the significance of the cross, this section we get at in John chapter 13 is kind of different than anything Jesus has done up until this point. And all of the signs that came before this one, at least in some of the signs, and then also when you read in the other Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first four books, or first three books of the New Testament, when you read in those, one of the things you see is that Jesus often performs a sign or a miracle, or he teaches and tells or tells a parable, um, and then he kind of explains it. He kind of unpacks it for us. He tells us what it's all about. Well, in John chapter 13, what he begins doing in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, right, what he begins doing there is before the greatest sign of all times, right, before he goes to the cross, he's unpacking the significance of the cross. He's from uh, going through um, um, from one thought to another, transitioning, but he's all this is leading up to what the cross means for our lives. And so this foot washing that we get at in John chapter 13 is at the Lord's Supper. Now, the foot washing is something that we probably don't always associate with the Lord's Supper. What we do associate with it is the bread and the wine. We're common uh, or familiar with Jesus breaking bread and saying, this is my body, and then him drinking wine and saying, this is my blood, and telling the disciples to do this in remembrance of him. So we're familiar with that part of the story, right? The symbolism that's there where Jesus is saying that when you leave this room, um, the cares of life will distract you from the cause of Christ. And he's saying you need to gather frequently and regularly and break bread and drink juice (laughs) in order to remember the cause of Christ and the great difference that Christ wants to make in your life. But John chooses, and John's a little bit different in his gospel, um, intentionally so, John chooses to record a different story, a different side of things, a different perspective of what happens at this very same dinner where Jesus broke bread and drank wine and said, do this in remembrance of me. John chooses to tell it from a different perspective, and he's telling it from the perspective of something Jesus did during the meal when he gets up from the table that they were reclining at and washed this disciples' feet. Now, foot washing in biblical times was a common practice. If you can imagine, and it's difficult for us to imagine, but if you can't imagine if we could go back in a time before there was um, before there was indoor plumbing, uh, and, and I'll just leave this up to your imagination. Um, but, but of what they did with their waste, right? Um, there was when you were walking down the street, you might not want to walk close to somebody's window. Let's just put it that way, because there's stuff that could potentially come flying out of the window. If you can imagine a day and age when there weren't streets that were paved with asphalt, I got stuck behind the other day one of those street sweeper trucks, the ones with the little thing that's just, we, we sweep our 
streets. <laughs> if you can imagine a day where those kinds of things didn't happen, if you can imagine a day that didn't have, uh, uh, the streets didn't have uh, uh, gutters, if you will, and sewers and places for the water to run off, if you can imagine a day when there were wild animals that, um, that, that roamed the street and, and they didn't have, like when you go, um, it, well, you see them sometimes in Atlanta with the, uh, the little horse-drawn carriages and the um, um, the horses have those little uh, fecal bags, if you will. I, I don't know if there's a proper name for those. Uh, fecal bags, uh, not poop bags. Um, but but if, if, if you're familiar with, with that, if you can imagine a day where there were wild animals roaming the street and there were no fecal bags there to catch the stuff and, and there were no such thing as closed-toed shoes. In fact, everybody wore the sandals uh, that were kind of open-toed and they were roaming the streets and walking from place to place. You didn't get in your car, in your garage before you entered into the unsanitary world, but you walked from place to place in all kinds of Stuff ended up on your feet. And so when you would enter into someone's home, it was almost like when you enter into somebody's home today who's very or who is at least concerned with being um, sanitary and they ask you to take off your shoes. When you would enter into somebody's home in biblical times, they would ask you to wash your feet. In fact, they would provide a basin for you to wash your feet in. And sometimes there would be a servant that would accompany that basin so that Either you could or they could wash your feet, but there was a rule in many people's home, and that's that you aren't coming in my home with those, those feet. And during this meal, Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room, and as they were there reclining for dinner, I My uh, my assumption is that their feet must not have been washed, and just before they begin to eat, or maybe even um, even nastier. Uh, during the meal, Jesus gets up and um, he wraps a towel around his waist and um, takes on the appearance of a servant and goes around to these guys that are reclining, more than likely on, on mats on the ground, um, ready to eat, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, foot washing was common in biblical times, but it was uncommon for someone like Jesus to wash uh, his disciples' feet. It was uncommon for a teacher to wash the feet of his students, because in biblical times there was this thing, and it exists today, but not so strongly as it did in biblical times, right? It's this thing that exists where there was this status, this hierarchy, if you will, this social hierarchy that was built into society, and you just didn't do things like that. A teacher who was considered superior to his students didn't wash the feet of his students. He didn't serve his students. A teacher would not choose to make himself low like that in order to, in fact, what an the things that Jesus does here is that he undermines his own authority. If you can imagine, it, it would almost be like, and I try to think of this, it would almost be like um, it, in, in our society, we've, we've come to respect people no matter, um, 
Maybe not. Our society doesn't really respect people. Uh, but but we've, we, we've come to pretend like we respect people, right? We, we, we've learned how to pretend like we respect people. We've come to pretend like we respect people and that we treat all people equally. Um, but, but it would almost be like in our society accepting as authoritative uh, um, for your life. Um, oh, man, I hate to use analogies. But let, let's just say the trash man, right? It's almost like accepting as authoritative for your life. Um, the guy that's picking up your trash. Um, yeah. And so for Jesus, one who had all authority, who had a great following, who taught powerfully, for him to get down and put his hands on the disciples' feet in a very fundamental way in biblical times undermined his authority. In fact, it reveals one of the great paradoxes in Jesus' identity. And we read throughout Scripture, and particularly in John, we see that Jesus' identity is filled with paradoxes, right? He's full of grace and truth, right? There's not just grace, oh, you can do what you want to do, but there's grace and there's truth. There's a way that is right, and God has said it for you. He was full of grace and truth. He was fully God and fully man. One of the paradoxes is difficult, if not impossible, for us to understand another places in the Bible. He's both lion and lamb, right? This powerful image of a lion and this um, vulnerable image and gentle image of a, of a lamb. And so we see that in Scripture. And then here in Gospel of John, we see that he's both servant and king, right? That he's king and servant. And this would have been one of the most difficult paradoxes for anyone to accept. And so when Jesus gets down and washes his disciples' feet, Peter's like, uh-uh, not happening here, not today. If you see how this story plays out in John chapter 13, um, I'm going to pick up in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper, and laid aside his garment. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so when he came, verse 6, and so he came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. How many of us would have had that response? Now, I think we have to recognize that Peter probably had a wrong image of what Jesus was about, right? You remember a couple of weeks ago when we saw that they thought Jesus was coming as a king in power and they were waiting for him to draw his sword and defeat the Roman Empire and all of their enemies. And all everyone wanted to have a part of that. And that, that view, that 
perspective probably hadn't been changed yet. And so Peter's going, I have no part of this long-awaited kingdom if you don't wash my feet. I'll let you do it. I don't, I don't quite understand why you want to do it, um, but, but I'm going to let you do it if it means having a part with you. And I think the temptation when we come across these paradoxes um, in the Bible uh, about Jesus' identity, when we see him as lion, lamb, or when we see him as God, man, or, or particularly here when we see him as servant and king, the temptation that we all face is to reduce Jesus to a good guy who taught some valuable lessons to improve our lives. What we see him as is teaching us something about the intrinsic value of humility. In fact, our society has grasped hold of humility as a value that will improve your life. There are all kinds of articles and teachings out there that say that if you are a manager on your job and you are a servant leader, that it will increase employee morale and it will increase productivity. And in fact, your employees will like you and they might just start showing up on time, right? There are teachings that teach us the value of humility, right? Because humility has intrinsic value to it. In fact, there's this idea that maybe if you, maybe, just maybe, that here's a wild idea. If you're humble and you don't think you know it all, you might listen to some other people and you might not get into some mess to begin with that when you live by your own wisdom and your own understanding in pride and not humility, you find yourself making mistakes, um, messing stuff up <laughs> and too proud to admit it. And now you're messing stuff up and covering stuff up. And so we see in our society that pride, that, that, pride, that humility has this intrinsic value, that there's this value to humility. And what, we, what we're tempted to do here is to reduce Jesus to a good guy that taught some good lessons to, value, to improve our lives. And what the scriptures are teaching us is that God had a vision through Jesus Christ that was so much bigger than that, right? That what God wanted to do through Jesus Christ was so much greater than improve our lives. Now, God wants you to have, um, he wants you to have a life that you enjoy. But he could have written a book for that. <laughs> if he wanted to improve your life, he could have written a book for that. There was no need to go to the cross. What we see in the scriptures is that God's vision in sending Jesus to go to the cross is so much more than improving our lives. In fact, when we read in John and other places in the Bible, John talks about it as being born again. Other places talk about it as new life or being a new creation in Christ. Other ones use the word salvation or redemption. And that's so much more than God just simply improving our lives through teaching us a value. This is not an object lesson where Jesus is like, let me wash these feet so I can teach these people humility to improve their lives. Instead, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us publicly how human beings can live into God's purposes and God's plan for their life. He's modeling for us how through humility we can live into God's purpose and God's plan for our lives. Which 
in many cases, is counter what's taught in our society. Our society will often teach us, dream big, reach for the sky, have big ideas for what you want for your life. And what we see in Jesus is something that's much different than that, and that's Humble yourself before the creator of the universe and allow his dreams to become your dreams. Right? Humble yourself before the creator of the universe and allow his dreams to become your dreams. Because if we're stuck with our dreams, very rarely will we dream up the cross and the plan and will of God in every case will take a backseat to our plan and our will. You see, what we see in Jesus' life is that the only way for us to live into God's life-changing plan is by humbling ourselves, refusing to dream big dreams that leave God out, but by humbling ourselves before the creator of the universe. Right? And sometimes we miss that, right? That the God that we serve is the creator of the universe. He knows what's best for us. And there's times where in my life and hopefully in our lives as a church that we find ourselves going, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing here or right now. And instead of writing out some big dreams and instead of, and I'm not an enemy of pros and cons lists. I think we can roll with those sometimes. But instead of, uh, um, instead of relying on our pros and cons list to try to figure out the plans of God for our life, that we just sit before the Lord with the scriptures and we read them and sit before the Lord in prayer and allow the plans and will of God to become our plans. And when they seem radical, and maybe kind of foolish and they seem like they're risky but they're coming straight out of scripture in the way that God is working in our lives and leading us we refuse to reject the plans of God and say God if you don't go with me before me ahead of me somehow if you don't part the Red Sea I'm not going and we trust the Lord and follow him and that's what we see Jesus doing Imagine Moses when he got to the Red Sea, right? He's going, it isn't my will. I don't want to lead these people. Let's go back, right? Um, but God, when he followed God and God's will, which seemed impossible, God parted the Red Sea. Now, the challenge. Um, the challenge is, oh, how easy our will creeps its way into God's will. And how common we um, put God's names on, on things that God wants to have nothing to do with. And how careful we must be to sit long and sit quietly before the Lord and allow Him to speak to sit in community with friends through authenticity and transparency 
and allow God to speak through our community of believers. How important it is for you to join a city group at Tri-Cities Church (laughs) where you can sit weekly in community with other believers where you can get to know them and they can know you by name and your story and you can live authentically and with transparency before others and they can pray for you and they can offer you some guidance and together you can sit before the Lord and find that your life is made whole in community and God's will is made actual as you follow him. You see, what Jesus is doing isn't just teaching us a good value, a good virtue for your life. He's not just saying, be humble, because that way it will improve your life. You won't make as many foolish mistakes. He's saying, be humble, because that's the only way that the plan and purpose of God can be realized in your life, is through humility. And he shows us what humility looks like. What was absolutely out of the realm of his responsibility, that is what he did. He did it for all 12 of the disciples, including Judas. The one that he knew was not a true disciple, but at that very moment was sitting around the table as an enemy of God. That that's humility. Not thinking more highly of himself than he should. I guess Jesus could have thought as highly of himself as he wanted to. He's Jesus after all. Um, not thinking as highly of himself <laughs> as, our, as his, his community might have looked at him and thought that he should. You are a teacher. You should wear a robe. You should sit at the place of honor. You have earned this. You performed great signs. You went to school. You got a job. You did the right things. You bought a house. You have a car. You built your family. You should sit at the place of honor, right? Not thinking more highly of oneself than our society teaches that we should, but rather humbling oneself and putting oneself in the place of a servant. In fact, it's hard to read this gospel and not think about Philippians chapter, chapter 2. Um, where, where it says this in Philippians chapter 2, uh, uh, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, <laughs> but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, right? Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, 
he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. It's the ultimate model of humility. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see playing out here in this passage is that people could have said to Jesus from the time he was young, dream big, set your course, go the way that you want for your life, pursue the things when obstacles appear, stomp them out of the way. When things seem to persevere through it, continue on the course that you've charted for your own life. And when anything seems to get in the way, you remove that. Jesus could have very well have done that and he would not have ended up in the will of God. This story would not have ended with so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I don't, I don't know a better way of saying this, but, but than saying that... that um, God's dreams are better than yours. God's dreams are better than yours. So you may feel like you've learned to dream big and reach for the sky. God's dreams are better than yours. There's a couple of challenges I think we see in this passage, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I think the first one for us as a church is to accept um, the cleansing power of the cross that gives us right standing before a holy God. That we accept the cleansing power of the cross that gives us right standing before the holy God. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, if you look in, uh, where am I? in John chapter 13, uh, uh, and I'm going to pick up in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Hopefully this is the right place. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, right? So he's teaching here that once you've put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that you are clean already, right? That you are cleansed by the cross once you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that all of our sins, all of our wrongdoing, past, present, and future, we're cleansed from those. We now have right standing before a holy God. God loves us. God accepts us. Um, we struggle and live with guilt, but God has clothed us with his righteousness, and God doesn't see us once we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. as the master of our lives. He doesn't see us for the wrongs that we've done but he sees us and accepts us as though we've done no wrong. That's the powerful message of the cross. 
that we now, through the cross of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus, have right standing before God, where we can stand before the creator of the universe in confidence, knowing that he loves us, forgives us, want to use us, and there's no place for guilt anymore, because if God, the creator of the universe, uh, isn't holding it against you, neither can anybody else, and you can stand before that God in confidence. And so the first thing we see when Jesus is talking to his disciples in this story is that one of the things, or the thing we must first do is to accept the cleansing power of the cross. Second thing I think we have to do before we can get to living out God's will through humility is to participate fully in the sanctifying power of the cross. If you continue in those verses I was just reading, verse 11, verse 10, for Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So he's saying, if you've put your hope and trust in him, unlike the one that's betraying him is Judas, if, if you know the end of the story. We haven't gotten to the end of the story. In biblical times, that story was like classic, so they didn't need to say, like John didn't need to say, hey, that one was Judas. Uh, Judas is the one that betrayed Jesus with a kiss. We'll see it later in the gospel. And so Jesus says, that one, he's not clean because he hasn't put his hope and trust in me, but you are clean except for your feet. And um, what he's teaching is this, that just as it's impossible to walk in the world, especially biblical times with fecal matter on the ground and sandals on, just as it's impossible to walk in the world and not get on your feet. It's impossible for us to walk in this world and not, not, not pick up the filth, the filth of this world and the filth of the world be portrayed in our lives. Jesus is teaching that we're constantly in need of our feet being clean. We're constantly in need of to confess, to repent. We, we have to submit to the sanctifying power of the cross. It is not enough to just trust in Jesus Christ and accept his righteousness, which covers and clothes us, but God wants us to actually live into that righteousness actually in our lives, that we actually give our lives to Jesus Christ and we say, okay, I accept your righteousness. I'm no longer guilty. And often we stop there, but Jesus wants us walking into holiness, right? Because that's the power of the cross and it empowers us to walk into holiness. And then finally, what we see is that um, um, this passage is challenging us to practice cross, I didn't have a better way of saying this, cross-powered humility. Um, um, there, there's a passage in Corinthians um, where Paul writes that God used the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. That he used an instrument of death 
to accomplish His will. And we see through Jesus Christ that what, what God did was that he used what everyone else would have said, no way. God won't use that. There's no way that God's going to receive glory from that. And God did. He received ultimate glory. And the challenge of this passage is that when we humble ourselves, finding ourselves even sometimes in situations where we're tempted to say, no way is God going to get glory through this, when we find ourselves in situations that say, no way is God going to use this. This must be fully outside of the realm of God's will. When we humble ourselves, when we practice cross-powered humility, I don't know if that even makes sense. If we practice cross-powered humility, powered by what God was able to accomplish through something as foolish as the cross, when we allow God to do that in our lives, ultimately God is glorified. If you read um, John chapter 13, uh, ver- I'll pick up in, in verse 13. Listen to what Jesus said. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. But, but, but Jesus, like, Let's just say, like, he's about to raise from the dead. But Jesus, we're like your disciples. We're going to be celebrities. But you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. As I, just Jesus saying this, I have humbled myself and served you. That's what you should do to others. That what appears in this world to be foolish very may well be and often is the will of God. God uses the foolishness of this world to shame the wise. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus is saying, if you call yourself to be my disciple, then you cannot be too good to pursue me and God's will for your life, even when it means making yourself lower than you ever thought you would be, all the while trusting that as we lower ourselves, God's name will be glorified and ultimately God will raise us up and so that we might be where he is. You see, Jesus set an example for us through humility. And this humility empowers us, enables us to live into 
God's will for our lives. This is the first of, or the beginning at least, of Jesus beginning to unpack for us what significance the cross has for our lives. The cross means that we get to live into God's dreams for this world. I want to be a part of that. I want to dream God-sized dreams for my life. I don't want to settle for good dreams. I don't want to settle for what looks good. I want God-sized dreams. Even when those look different than the plans that I write for my life and the story that I've imagined. You know, every Sunday we share in communion and we come to these four tables and as we come to these tables, we're reminded that death is never the end of the story for God. And that we can follow Him even unto death and God can raise us up. If you are here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, to walk with Him, to learn His ways, to allow His ways to become your ways. The Scriptures teach us don't wait until you've gotten it all figured out because you won't, right? Don't wait until your life is cleaned up and you're ready to walk with Him now and you feel like, I can do this, because you're going to find out that you can't. But what you are, will find if you make a decision knowing that you're fully inadequate and that you aren't able to follow the will of Jesus, but you just simply say yes to him. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that his spirit empowers you to do what feels impossible. His spirit empowers you to live out a faith that would transform all of your days. And I challenge you to say yes and find out if that's true. And so if that's you, as we share in communion, I'm going to be back at the next steps table. Kim will be back at the next steps table. If you just want to begin the journey of walking with Jesus for your life, come back there and let's, let's have a word. Let's make that decision today. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll share in communion. God, we give you thanks this morning that you give us this story that shows us what you're able to do with a life that's humbled before you. And God, I pray today that you will humble us before you so that we say we're unable, we're not capable, it's impossible. But by God's strength and might, all things are possible. And knowing that that is true, God, help us to say yes to you. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.